Thank you, thank you, Cole, and the rest of the worship team. How good to sing those words together. I was thinking how much more profoundly meaningful it is to sing those words, to ask those questions of one another, and then answer all of them in the affirmative referring to Jesus, and how different it would be to just sing that by yourself. How important that we gather like this on a Sunday morning, get up with all the things we could be doing otherwise and with all the hassles that some of us have in our families, understandably even getting here. It's so good to do this. It was so good to hear Steve behind me singing with his beautiful voice. He does have a beautiful voice, strong voice. But even if it weren't beautiful, maybe even more meaningful if it weren't because he'd be making a joyful noise without a good voice to go with it. I'm so encouraged to hear all of you ask me those questions and then answer them in the affirmative. Yes, he is. It's amazing how you can come to church on a Sunday morning, you can walk through your days feeling the rightness of those answers. Yes, he is worthy of all blessing and honor and praise because who he is and what he accomplished but it can feel hollow on some days. It can feel lacking enthusiasm or passion or engagement or meaning in your life that translates into how you actually live. And so it's so good to gather like this. I was listening to Christian radio. I love that my kids love Christian radio. It's what they choose. Country second, interesting, raised in L.A., but Taiwan and L.A., but they love that Garth Brooks stuff. And so... But they listen to country second, but they, they do, they put on worship songs. And, but I was listening to Christian radio the other day, and, and the, the guy said, the, I don't, you call them DJs still? They probably don't do any actual DJing. Computers probably do it all for them now. But uh, he said, there's one thing you need to remember. You are worthy. And he wasn't talking to God. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm not sure you want to be telling us that, Right? Because grace is all about God's exhaustive, incredible love being poured out on us in spite of our unworthiness, isn't it? Isn't that what grace is? Is, Isn't grace, if it's deserved, not grace? The name of our church is Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada, Dave Peters would have me add. Because there are other grace evangelical free churches. We don't want to be confused with those. We're of La Mirada. But man, we, we get messages that we can find quite encouraging, but maybe shouldn't. Because maybe a superficially therapeutic, emotionally encouraging word to us, like I am worthy, actually can gut the real kind of peace I should have that comes through the real gospel from the real Jesus. Because there are lots of versions of gospels and Jesus out there. And by the way, man, I hear people on these Christian radio stations calling in and saying, you guys saved my life. You're the ones who help me through every day. And I think, where's the church in the lives of these people? If the radio station's their main source of fellowship and instruction and encouragement, and I'm not minimizing that those things can be encouraging, hear me. But man, it seems unweighted here. And so, so we can have so many different approaches, shortcuts, temporary sources of peace. But I think from our passage this morning, God's goal for us this morning is we all leave here with real peace. With real understanding of who God is and how he's for us in Jesus 
that eventually, not maybe even initially, but eventually will lead to an experiential peace based in the peace that he brings through his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection. And when we put our faith in him, we have real peace, lasting peace, because we have peace with God. Well, would you open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 19 as we continue our series through this wonderful gospel, this story about Jesus, as we've been hearing comforting words and hard words and words of rebuke and words of love and grace and comfort and God seeking the lost, we now come to a crucial point in the life of Jesus. What my Bible has is the triumphal entry, which in Luke, though, I think should be called maybe the triumphal procession. He doesn't actually enter Jerusalem. Luke's in no rush to get him there, it seems like the other Gospels seem a little more concerned about. But, but he's approaching Jerusalem as the king we all need. Let's pray as we go to God's word in Luke 19. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to flail around trying to find truth and light and understanding and perspective and the source of our faith with our own means. But you've given us your clear and authoritative and perfect word to guide us, to enlighten us. And I pray now as we go to your word that you would help us to go with humble hearts and teachable hearts. Wherever we are in our relationship with you, when each of us walked in here this morning, I pray we would want to learn something, or else why would we be here? Something from you that even may be unsettling to the current state of our lives, but if it's from you, it's good. And so Lord, help us now to learn from you as we learn from the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when he had said these things, what things? Well, I think the things in the previous passage that Kenny beautifully preached last week, the parable of the ten mean is this 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 leader, this ruler, this nobleman whose citizens hated him and had various ways of stewarding his gifts to them. After he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? Remember, it wasn't trained. It had never been sat upon, never mind broken. Why are you untying the colt? It's going to run away. And they say the Lord has need of it, just as Jesus said. And that seemed to be sufficient, interesting. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road 
As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Sounds like the angels at the birth of Jesus. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, even if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now, they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Oh, Jesus has so much to teach us this morning, but he has mostly to teach us about himself. Because we will never find out who we are until we find out who Jesus is. And what we find out in this passage is that Jesus is the king. There's there's some glorious imagery here that if you know the Old Testament well, well, we'll, we'll just shout at you that Jesus is declaring his kingship here. He is the king, the king that we all need, desperately need. All of these images of Jerusalem where the the king resides and the Mount of Olives where the king will return, the messianic king. These images we get from the Old Testament messianic prophecies like Zechariah 9 where he's riding on a donkey, riding on a, 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 a colt, walking into Jerusalem on a beast of burden. All of these beautiful pictures of who he is as the king of kings. Now, Who wasn't raised in an American context here? Brazil, one, two, three, three, wow. So the rest of us, you guys might just take the next couple minutes off, but you may need to hear this too, but the rest of us really need to hear this. Do you realize what a weird love-hate relationship we Americans that were raised in this context have with a king? Realize that? I mean, it is not a coincidence that when uh, the founders were thinking of what title to give the president, it wasn't your royal highness or my liege or, or, uh, or king even. It's Mr. Mr. President. That's, that's his title. That's what we call him. Oh, his role is the president, but he's Mr. Same thing as the farmer and the coal miner and the house and, and, the, and the man just who's uh, traveling, selling things. And and isn't it embedded in American culture 
to despise anybody who thinks they're better than they really are. That they somehow deserve something because of their, their birthright or something. No, what's the American ideal? Self-made man, rugged individualism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make it happen. You know, and this whole idea of a king is just appalling to us. And it's understandable, right, from, from the tyranny that kings were creating in the world at the time and for all of human history. We just read through, if you're going through the Bible reading in, in our Bible plan, reading through the Bible this year, all these kings, you know. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, I'm, in, I'm second Chronicles now. These kings and God saying, ah, there's another bad one. There's another bad one. Ah, he was just like his father Manasseh. And they say, oh, it's a good one. And you say, yes, finally the good king has arrived. But even the best ones have some massive failures in their lives. And so there's really good reason to be skeptical at best of any human king, right? Because it's true that when, when you are in a role that has power and authority, oh, there's a human instinct to, to just use it for selfish gain and gain more power and more wealth and believe things people say about you, even though they probably don't actually believe and they're just afraid of you. And, and so it's, it's understandable that we have some real opposition to kings. But isn't it fascinating? We can't get away from the idea of royalty and kingship, can we? I mean, many of the greatest stories that capture our imagination through human history have an idea of a sovereign, of a king, of someone who's actually got the power and the goodness to rule like we desperately know we need to be ruled, to be taken care of. Someone to bring peace to this chaotic and very dark and troubled world. We all know deep down, and whether it's Gandalf, you know, he's not technically a king, but, you know, he plays that role. He's got the power we need when, when the situation looks absolutely desperate. And here he comes over the white, on the white horse, riding over that hill, bringing the victory that we had no way of bringing ourselves. We can't get away from this idea, can we? It's all over the place. And even though we should look at Harry and Meghan with an eye roll, right? As they're on, as one person said, a worldwide privacy tour. <laughs> um, we, we, we can't help but being drawn. It's fascinating, isn't it? This stuff goes back hundreds and hundreds of years and generations, and these crowns that were made in the 1500s and the 1600s are still put on these heads, and these carriages come through, and we say, oh, this is something wonderful. It's something we're drawn to. There's something so compelling for us. Why? Because even though there's such good reason to have such aversion to trusting anyone with a kingly role, what if... What if there were a king? What if, what if a king came along who really could be trusted and really had your best interest in mind and was good and kind and compassionate? And that's not enough. He better be powerful enough. He better be strong enough. He better have the authority to do all the things his compassion and love want to accomplish for us. 
what if there were a king like that? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is teaching us in this passage this morning. He is that king we all deep down desperately long for. There's a good reason to doubt this because we grab power. You know, King George III, after we won the War of Independence, he heard, actually from an artist, Laura, who painted Washington's famous portrait, he heard from an artist who told him, do you know that George Washington is going to resign as the president? He's going to resign. He's going to walk away. He has the ability right now, with what he's been able to accomplish, to take over the world and what's just happened. And he's going to give it all up and go back to the farm. That's how politicians used to think. Sadly, they don't anymore. No, they want to own everybody's farm. <laughs> and so, so he said, he, it, it, here's what King George said about him. If Washington resigns, he is the greatest man in the world. Because humans don't do that. Jesus is the model of the great king we all desperately need. And so in this passage, we have a king who we want to give control to. We all walk in here desperately wanting control of our lives. It becomes maybe the, the idol in the core of our hearts wanting to control things because things feel so out of control, even in our homes. Before you even read the news about how out of control things are in the world, we need to realize that, that things are out of control. Do you know on this day, John Wycliffe was being tried for his crimes, and there was an earthquake. And he said, that's because they're, opposing her they're imposing heresy on Jesus. And like the, the earth shook when, when Christ was crucified, these tormentors and heretical killers of, of Wycliffe eventually, uh, he thought the earthquake was a result of that. The world is shaking. It's, it's, it's trembling. And that's the world we live in. And, and so we don't want to give up control. We want to think we have control. And we need to realize that we give up control to our sovereign, our King Jesus. Listen to what Lewis says, C.S. Lewis. Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars. Instead, they honor those things. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters. Al Capone was really famous in his day. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, it will gobble poison. Isn't that amazing? We, 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 we long for something deep down, but we need a long for what we need in the source that really brings it. We can never fully trust a human king, but Jesus is the king we need. There's seven things about him that he wants us to know, I believe, may, among many others maybe, but I, at least these seven. I had six, but for the superstitious among us, I didn't want you to be distracted, so I added a seventh that's actually there. Here are the seven things. Jesus is a sovereign king. He's the honored king. He's the humble king. He's the oppressed king. He's a weeping king. He's a prophetic king. And he's our king who brings peace. 
One, he's our sovereign king, verses 28 through 34. Jesus is the sovereign Messiah. All of these images in this passage, the city of Zion is what he's riding into. Since he was a little boy, he had heard about this city growing up in Nazareth as the city of God, the heavenly city. There's a church in Compton. I absolutely love the name of the church. I've preached there a few times, and it's called Citizens of Zion. That's a beautiful name for a church. That's what we are. We're the citizens of the holy city. We're we're the citizens of Zion. And that is because the king of kings will bring the kingdom and he will bring it initially there. He ushers in the covenant through the covenant people, the Jewish people, whose capital city is Jerusalem, which by the way means city of peace. The place where peace is brought in. And the whole Old Testament is looking forward to the day when the kingdom of God comes where it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And we long for that day and we look forward to it and we find out that it is inaugurated, ushered in through Jesus. The day of the Lord. The coming shalom comes through Christ. He's the sovereign king. And we say sovereign is because he's calling the shots. He's in control. Even of the minute details, even of the way his death is going to come about. In chapter 9, we saw Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem knowing it's where his demise will take place. He looks to Jerusalem and he says, I'm heading there, but only once my disciples understand who I am. And in this key scene, they understand more. Jesus is complete in complete control of the details of finding this colt and untying it and the words to say with the authority the Lord has need of it. No other explanation is needed. And apparently the owners recognize, okay then, you don't need to convince me for with all sorts of reasons and rationale. If the Lord needs it, untie the colt. Isn't that amazing? He's even, I think, sovereign over the cult's behavior here. The one who calms the wind and the waves and feeds the 5,000 and heals the blind and the sick and the leper is able to ride a never sat upon colt. Anybody ever try to break a horse? I never have. I'm sure I would be the one broken if I tried to do that. And he just rides this colt into town. Well, on his way into town. Jesus has control even over the events of his impending death. And he's the honored king. That's what we see in verses 35 through 38. This beautiful praise honoring him by a multitude of disciples. It's beautiful what they say. It's a lot like what we were singing as Cole and his team led us this morning. Praising Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt as you would for a king. As Zechariah 9 prophesied would happen. Beautiful picture of this colt. And they put their clothes on the ground like a king returning from a victorious battle. That's the image here. The king's coming back in to, to the city after a victorious battle. The battle hasn't been finished yet, but he's on his way and there's victory already going on. He's about to deliver the decisive blow in this war against principalities and powers in high places and spiritual powers of darkness and sin and death. And he goes in in charge. 
He'll look like a helpless victim, but he's in charge. He's the honored king. And as they're singing and praising God in a loud voice, no timidity here, they all suddenly became extroverts apparently. No, they were so moved by this, they're loudly proclaiming this because it has so affected them. The whole multitude began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. So the works that Jesus has done are in focus here. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So there's praise going on here. Probably as they were saying these things, the words from Psalm 48 are evident to them. Psalm 148 has very similar language here. Or or maybe they had in mind uh, Isaiah 55. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Even inanimate objects are glorifying God by their existence made by this powerful God that even the heavens reveal the glory of God here. It's as if praise is a have-to situation. It's not a, it's not a um, uh, oh, I'm stuck with this. I, no, I have no option. I have to do this. There's, there's no option but to praise God here. And so our sovereign king is our honored king. But he's also amazingly our humble king. As he rides on this colt, this unbroken, untrained animal, like Zechariah tells us, will happen. Zechariah tells us that Jesus is going to, the Messiah is going to ride in in humility on a colt. Rejoice greatly. This is what it says, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't that cool? So Jesus is not only sovereign over this, he's not only the honored king, but he's the king who's grounding it all in scripture. He's not coming up with these ideas on the fly. They've been known for millennia. And he's just doing things in accordance with the scripture because he comes submitting to the will of the Father in the entire process. So he's the humble king. And we have this beautifully expanded in Philippians 2, don't we? As the Christian ethic to consider others as more important than yourself and don't do anything out of selfish ambition or empty conceit. I must tell you, I had the privilege of officiating Katie Geringer and Emery Burton's wedding. It's a good day. It's a good day. You should have seen Denise getting it done on the dance floor. Uh, but it, it was a beautiful time, a beautiful wedding. It was glorious to be part of it. I mean, Katie grew up here. She was. It's impossible to be a cuter little girl than Katie was, is it not? It's just unbelievable. But it was just beautiful. But I preached out of this passage, and as I was preaching it, Emery and Katie were reciting it with me because they memorized it for my class. And it's amazing because it tells us to live humbly, not grabbing for power, not grabbing for identity and image and, and esteem, but humbling ourselves, having the mind of Christ 
and being able to be humble because we have his mind. And, and how was he humble? Oh, he was in very nature God and didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, held onto, but made himself nothing. And he took the form of a servant and humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how he humbled himself. And so this king is sovereign. This king is to be honored. But this king is humble. We need that, don't we? It's one thing to have a powerful king. But is he humble? Does, does he have the ability to condescend to our level and care for us like we desperately need to be cared for? He does. He does. And that's why he's worthy. This humility is uncommon and Jesus has it. And he's the opposed king, the oppressed king as well. Like in Kenny's passage from last week, Luke 19. Well, it doesn't belong to him. He just preached on it. Uh, in, in Luke 19, it, this, this nobleman, we're told in 1914, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to, raise o- uh, to reign over us. And that's what's going on. His disciples, a multitude of them, are loudly praising him. And the leaders, the people who should know best, say this in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, if I tell you, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. He's opposed by these men. And and like in Psalm 148 and Isaiah 55, even creation itself is declaring the greatness of God. And and that's why, you know that great hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, Lift Up Your Voice and With Us Sing? Hallelujah. And then then it commands the sun, Thou burning sun with golden beam, Thou silver moon with softer gleam, Sing ye. Hallelujah. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, ye clouds that sail in heaven along, rising morn in praise rejoice, find a voice. And let's not be outdone by inanimate objects <laughs> in praise and worship. That's why I love this stanza, which sadly doesn't get sung as much as the other ones. And everyone with tender heart, forgiving others, take your part. Hallelujah. You who long pain and sorrow bear, sing praise and cast on God your care. That's, that's who we worship, a humble, sovereign, honored king. Going to Jerusalem knowing it's the place of suffering and death that awaits in a fallen world. And Jesus knew that being opposed by a world that hates him was part of the deal. And people who follow in his footsteps need to know that being hated by a world that hates him is part of the deal. Let's not be a bunch of whiners. (laughs) Christians, we can be whiners. Eh, Leave me alone. I'm not saying that in 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 a country where you get freedoms, you should seek those freedoms. But but Jesus says the world's gonna hate you. Do you know that's part of the deal? Are you okay with a coworker rolling his eyes at you? Because we have sent missionaries to the parts of the world where they're at risk of their very lives today serving where they are. We just get little glimmers of opposition. And so Jesus is the opposed one. And Jesus puts them right in their place. He says, oh, if they don't cry out, the stones will. 
Because the creator, who Jesus is along with the Father and the Spirit, is engineering this whole thing. Who do you think's in control here, he's saying. And here's the awesome thing right at the heart of this passage. Our sovereign, honored, humble, opposed king is a weeping king. We're told Jesus weeps, probably spurred on by this opposition. He then looks at the city, and we've got a photograph of Jerusalem. You need to know these are real places. You know, Bible can take on a mythical quality for us. This is, this is Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives today. This is what it looks like now. Now, see all those skyscrapers in the back? That was not there when Jesus was having this conversation. This is probably more what it looked like in this second artist's rendering. That's what he's looking at. The city he had heard about his whole life as a kid, and he's walking into this city, Jerusalem, and he looks at this city in the same feelings he no doubt had in the passage Randy preached in Luke 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you Gathered your children as a hen gathers its brood under its wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he sees them, and even the religious leaders now, who should know better, are opposing him. And he weeps over them. And please know, this, this word, that word weep is, is a really good English translation. You know, when you cry, it's different than when you weep, isn't it? You can control a cry. You can mask a cry. But when you're weeping, everybody knows it, right? I hope you've experienced that. There are a few things in life that just take over, like weeping and laughing, usually when you shouldn't be. So when it takes over the most and milk's coming out your nose when you were a kid, right? But, but Jesus is weeping here, convulsing, not looking pretty. Like he was, same thing going on at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. When he's thinking about the death of his friend, death in general, that's a result of the curse that he came to die to fix. His friends are lacking faith and he's weeping to the point where no doubt were people saying, wow, are you okay, Jesus? That, that's, that's what I'm talking about. G Jesus felt things deeply. We need to ask God to mature us emotionally. <laughs> it's one of the things about my wife I admire most. She's so emotionally mature, unlike her husband in many ways. Like she just seems to cry at all the right times. And laugh at the right times. There's a wisdom to her emotional life. And, and you know, I, I tried to teach her years ago to stop apologizing for crying. That's our instinct, isn't it? That's the other person's problem you're apologizing for. If they've got a problem with you crying, well, that's their problem, right? Here, Jesus is crying. There's plenty worth crying about in this world, is there not? You can get numb. You can get compassion fatigue when you're constantly bombarded with all the hard things in the world. But let's ask God to give us tender hearts because he has one. God has a tender heart that weeps at this rejection his people are bringing about for themselves. And you know what? His apostles end up being the same way. 
You know, these guys who are saying, bring down fire, Lord, they're rejecting you. Curse them. Take them out, Lord. <laughs> Jesus has to correct the sons of thunder, right? And, and so, but when they get it, listen, listen to Peter in Acts 13. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. The one who fulfilled the prophecies, they condemned, they crucified the Lord of glory. And they found no guilt in him worthy of death. And they asked Pilate to have him executed and they carried him away. But God raised him from the dead and he appeared to those. And Peter here is pleading with the Jewish people to not continue down this path they've been going down for centuries. Often with the leaders leading the way. And Paul, what does he say about the Jewish people? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. For I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And we, too, need to care about God's people. I still think there's a plan for God's chosen people, the, the, the Jewish people who we have been grafted into as Gentiles now and share the same inheritance as they in Abraham. But we need to care for them. But we also, as Luke so clearly does, care for all lost people. People in this world who don't know Christ, it's easy to just get used to people who are dying in their sins right before us. And we've got to care desperately for their souls. We long for their salvation. We've got to recognize this in our lives. And six, Jesus is the prophet king. He's the one who tells them of the coming judgment. Most vividly and immediately in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD brought about by the Romans. But ultimate judgment as well. He's warning them in... <clears throat> In verses 43 and 44, that not one stone will be left on top of another. There's coming literal destruction for this city. He knows it's coming. Why? Why is it coming? Why does he give him this word of prophecy? Because he says they don't know the way of peace. And there are probably even some who are singing that Jesus brings peace as he walks toward Jerusalem here who actually don't understand what real peace is or how you get there. He says to them, as he weeps over them, would that you, even you had known in this day, the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eye. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's an incredibly important term, visitation. It shows up over and over again in the Bible to the, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom. The visitation of God is what happens. Zechariah prophesies that the Messiah is coming, preceded by his son John the Baptist. And what does he say? He says that God has visited and redeemed his people, so blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David. 
The widow of Nain's son is raised, and what do they say? A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. So the visitation is the coming of the Messiah, and they didn't know that the visitation of God himself ushering in his kingdom has come through Jesus. That's what they didn't know. Now here's the challenging part of this. They knew, but they didn't know. There are different ways of knowing, aren't there? He can know things. Jesus has been telling him all along and he keeps rebuking him saying, wait, can't you tell what time it is? Can't you tell what season we're in? Can't you tell what day we're in? Oh, you're good at reading the sky to tell the weather, but you can't see the most important indicators that the kingdom, the visitation of God has come through me. The kingdom is in your midst and I am the one who brings it because I'm in your midst. That's what he keeps saying. And are you missing it? You want peace, you're even praising me for peace, but do you even know what real peace is? Do you know how to actually get to it? That's what he's asking. And Jesus is the way. Jesus brings real peace. Listen to Ephesians 2. Listen to this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, speaking to Gentiles, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... Now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, which we'll celebrate and remember in a minute. You You were brought peace. He is our peace. Verse 14. He's our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus is our peace. Listen to Kelly Capick. Jesus is our peace. Not a cheap or cheesy way of peace, but in an earthly, knowing, cosmos-altering way. He's the only answer to this pain and trouble. Sent by the Father in the power of the Spirit, the Son of God became fully and truly human. The God of peace breaks into our broken world as one of us and starts a renewed world. Realizing the ancient prophetic hope, he himself is our peace since he in his flesh breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. First and foremost between us and God and then between us and others. Not just between the sinner and God, but between Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, heaven and earth. Jesus is our peace, not merely some psychological manner but in a concrete, whole life way. He is our peace, not by numbing us, but by forgiving and healing us and enfolding us into his love and life. Even in the darkness of night and when confusion, doubt, and chaos swirl, Jesus still says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do you have peace this morning? I mean real peace. And by that, I don't mean that you're even feeling it right now. Because when we think of words like peace, and for that matter, words like guilt, we tend to think of our emotional experience of it, first and foremost. And we want to get there, but we get there by realizing that in Christ, you have peace with God. And if that's true, you're able to have peace in your soul. It's not always there. And you need to remind yourself and gather with God's people and ask questions like, is he worthy? And then we all say, yes, he is. Because there's often a disconnect as we grow. And so we lack peace. But don't make that what peace is. Because if you trusted Jesus in repentance and saving faith, you have peace with God. And if you have peace with God, you're good. You're good to go. He's for you and he's with you in Jesus. And that can and should ultimately lead to a settledness of soul 
And what, what's really evil about this is when you lack subtleness of soul, you can beat yourself up and lack peace even more. I should have peace. Ugh, I have less peace. Serenity now, you start yelling, right? <laughs> that doesn't help either, as Mr. Costanza discovered. Yeah, it, so do you have peace? I, I don't want you to leave here without true peace that leads to settledness of soul, but starts with being reconciled to God through Jesus' blood. That's what we're here for. Every week, every time we gather to find real peace, no matter what's before you, no matter what's on your plate today, and I know a lot of you well, and I know your lives, and I know you got all kinds of stuff going on. Some of you are thinking about financial trials. Some of you thinking are marriages that are a mess. Some of you are thinking about death more than the rest of us, and sickness and suffering. So where do you find peace? You know, Tim Keller died this week. Here's a quote of Tim Keller's. All death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. Those words of faith have become sight for him. He knows these are true. Listen to what his family said the day he died. Timothy J. Keller, husband, father, grandfather, mentor, friend, pastor, and scholar, died this morning at home. Dad waited until he was alone with mom. She kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Oh, it can be hard to internalize that and experience the peace that comes from the perspective where you know Christ, and so you've been reconciled to God, and even death doesn't have the last word for you because it didn't have the last word for Jesus. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves one more time of what Jesus did for us, who he is and what he did.